This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Good morning, Redeemer. Today's scripture is Matthew, chapter 26, verses 57 through 68, page 833 in the Pew Bibles. Please feel free to stand. Page 833, Matthew 26, 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it? That struck you. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have spoken to us. God, we come to you boldly in Christ Jesus and ask that you would come and illuminate our understanding. God, would you give us eyes to see? Would you help us to be bolstered in our confidence that even now, 
the Son of Man is seated at the right hand of power. God, would you, would you open our eyes? God, I even ask like Stephen saw that we would see Jesus at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning over all things, and that this would fill us with faith and confidence in him. We ask in his name, amen. Okay, so this morning we're going to look at, in this text, the reality that Jesus is presently reigning over all things. Uh, there's going to be sort of a transition in our sermon series. What we've been doing up to this point is focusing in on the person of Jesus. Who is he? What is true about him in his person? And over the next four weeks or so, we're going to begin looking at the work of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus in specific ways as we come up to Easter. So next week, we're going to look at the death of Jesus. Then we'll look at the resurrection of Jesus And then finally, we'll look at Jesus's return, that he is coming again to make all things new. But to begin that that time together, I want to go a little bit out of order and focus on the reality that Jesus is presently doing something. Jesus is presently about something right now. Look, Look with me at the notes. Many times, I don't think Christians spend a lot of time thinking about the present reality of Jesus Christ's ministry. Okay, so if the truth of the life of Jesus is is believable, right? If it's true that he lived a life, he came as a man, he is the word made flesh, God made flesh walking among us, he lived a life, he died and rose again. Then he ascended to the right hand of God. So what is he doing? Right? Like what is true about Jesus right now? Have we ever thought about that? I often find not very many Christians spend time thinking about the present tense reality of Jesus's ministry. We spend time thinking about his life, his death, his resurrection, and we might at times think about his future coming, but rarely do we think about what Jesus is presently doing, right? What makes the life of Jesus or what marks it right now, right? He is the resurrected Lord, meaning right now, Jesus has a body. Jesus has a body. He has flesh. He is a human forever. Right now, he is somewhere. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus right now is somewhere. Jesus of Nazareth. And the scriptures invite us to see where he is and what he is doing as a profound sustenance and source of strength for the life of the church. Look at letter B, the reality of Jesus' ascension. That means when he's taken up to heaven and his session. That's just a fancy word for uh, his ministry right now between his first coming and his second coming. It's a profoundly important part of Jesus's person and his ministry. The reality of Jesus's present reign has a far-reaching implications for understanding the authority of Jesus and the ministry of the church in the world, right? I want us to take time this morning to familiarize ourselves with some of these truths so that we are filled with faith, that we're activated some deep confidence in us as we walk through this world and to remind us of glorious truths of who Jesus is. 
Look at Roman numeral two. We'll jump right into the text. So we saw this, heard this text read. This text is uh, uh, recounting the trial of Jesus as he's about to go to his death to offer himself up as a substitute, uh, as, a, as a propitiation and a sacrifice to God for the sins of the world. He's being tried by the high priest and the religious leaders of the day. He's been betrayed by Judas and brought to them and they're holding this trial. And we heard it said many times that there's all these false witnesses seeking to condemn him and trap him and they can't even make sense of their story together, right? And we've come to this place where several of them stand up and say, this man said he would destroy the temple and then he would raise it up in three days. And the high priest begins to ask Jesus a specific question about whether he is the Christ or not, whether he believes himself to be the Christ. And Jesus's answer, though it may seem cryptic and uncertain to us, is so clear to them that the high priest literally tears his robes, the whole council determines that he's deserving of death, right? It is very clear to them what Jesus is saying, whether it's clear to us or not. So I want us to drill into this to see what it is Jesus is claiming here and then look at its implications for us as his people. So this statement of Jesus at this trial gives us an important insight to the nature of the cosmic significance of Jesus' death, resurrection, and exaltation to the right hand of God. In this very moment, Jesus is asked by the high priest, do you believe yourself to be the Christ, meaning the Messiah or the anointed one? The high priest is asking if Jesus is claiming to be the one sent by God to bring salvation and redemption to the people of Israel. Although Jesus allowed his disciples to identify him as this, right? Matthew 16, we looked at that uh, several weeks ago. Uh, Peter claims when Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? He says, you're the Christ. And Jesus doesn't correct him, right? So Jesus knows that he's the Messiah, but he rarely talks about himself as the Messiah because it was so full of wrong expectations in the day that he found himself that he liked to use a different statement about himself. He didn't identify himself regularly as the Christ in his life because of false expectations that the, the Jewish people had infused into the concept of the Messiah. Right? They believed that the Messiah's primary job when he came would be to destroy the Romans and establish like the good old days, right? like the glory days. And what they didn't understand was the greatest problem that they had was not the Romans. It was their hardness of their own heart. They didn't understand their real problem. They thought they were uh, to be uh, everything else was to be blamed, right? Like we don't experience the glory because of all that stuff outside of us. And Jesus understood that the problem that they faced in this world was internal, not that they were subject to the Romans. Look at letter D. Jesus responds to the high priest by declaring that the events that are happening right in front of him, the, the events as they're unfolding right in front of his eyes would lead to him seeing the son of man exalted at the right hand of God. 
and coming on the clouds of heaven, right? This is, again, to our ears, this could be like a really cryptic statement. It is not to Jesus's hearers, okay? So he goes, hey, tell me something. Are you the Messiah? Are you the one who's gonna come and destroy the Romans and throw them off and reestablish our kingdom to its rightful place? And he says, something that cuts even more to their hearts that they think he's blaspheming because of what he says. Look at letter E, the son of man. So this is a title that Jesus uses the most to describe himself. It was, uh, it had enough room in it that he could define the scope of his ministry uh, while, while not, uh, while avoiding some of the expectations that were held about related to the Messiah. Look at letter F. Although Jesus used the term son of man throughout his ministry, there was enough clear meaning in what he was saying to the high priest. The high priest thinks he's blaspheming. Look at Matthew 26, 65 to 66. I want you to notice the response here, right? Jesus makes this statement and the high priest tears his robes. That's the first thing that happens, right? It's not a cryptic statement that somebody hears it and literally rips their clothing, right? It's not like he's going, huh, I wonder what he's saying. I didn't really get it. I didn't catch it, right? He tears his clothes. He claims that Jesus is blaspheming God Almighty. He then says, we don't even need any more witnesses, right? We're all trying to do these trumped up charges thing. We're trying to get our stories straight and everybody's offering false witness. We don't even need any more witnesses. He's claimed from his very mouth something that is worthy of his death, and then they all cry out. What do they cry out? He deserves to die. This is the context of what's happening here. This is what Jesus gets at. But we have to understand the backdrop of what's going on here to understand the significance. Look at the top of page two. So to do this, we're gonna have to do a little background work. And I'm gonna unfortunately I have to fly through some of this. These might be some new concept for you, but that's okay. Uh, this is why, this is a total side note. I don't know why I'm gonna say this. This is why I give you notes, okay? I don't give you notes as like some measure of like how much longer we've got in the sermon. Um, I, I, I give this to you because I actually would love for you to take them and look at the scriptures, look at the contexts that they're in, go back and don't just read that one verse, read the whole section that it's a part of. I, I, I want us to be a people who are familiar with God's word cover to cover, saturated in it, uh, bathed in it, that it shapes how we view the world and how we view our place in it, how we view God. All of that, I want to be front and center in us. And so often I give you way more than we're gonna get at. And if I fly over at a clip, it's to introduce ideas that I long for you to go back and begin to grapple with, okay? So this is some background work of what is Jesus getting at here that is so remarkably offensive to these people that they're tearing their clothes, calling him a blasphemer and handing him over to death. Understanding the purpose of God for a human, a human king 
to reign over all creation, we have to go back to God's intentional design for the whole of creation and his purpose for humanity. Letter B, Genesis 1 and 2. It's easy to miss this if if you don't know what you're looking for, but it's really clear in the story of Scripture that Genesis 1 and 2, God is intentionally and uh, purposefully creating a garden temple for his image bearers to dwell in with him. Right, like God wants to dwell with his creation and a temple is just the place where God meets with his people, where God meets with creation. So he's putting this garden temple in place to where he can dwell and meet with his people. In the temple, uh, within this temple created for his dwelling and his glory, he places an image bearer, one that's responsible to live in intimate communion with him and to act as a ruler over all of created order. Look at Genesis 1. God comes uh, at the end of the creation account, the first creation account, and he says, let us make man in our image, uh, after our own likeness. Let them have dominion, right? So there's this relationship between being made in the likeness of God and expressing dominion or uh, authority over the earth. He goes on and he says, be fruitful and multiply, 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 <laughs> multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion. Let her see the concept of being made in the image of God speaks of two primary realities. Number one, you were made to relate to God. You were created with the faculties required and necessary to commune with the uncreated God. You are uh, in his likeness. That means even according to his kind, you have the capacity to relate to him. That's one aspect of it. But the second aspect, one we don't often talk about, is that it speaks specifically of the role of acting as a sovereign over creation. So being made in the image and likeness of God speaks of a specific role of partnering with him, partnering with God in his creation to bring his purposes to pass in accordance with his will. Letter D, the reality of Adam's sin brings profound curses in relation to both of these parts of being an image bearer. Right? His capacity for relationship with God and his dominion over created order. Right? We see immediately there is alienation and separation from God. Right? We're brought under the judgment of God, the wrath of God. Adam and Eve are put outside of the garden, no longer able to come into the place where they can dwell with him face to face any longer. Right? They're separated from the ability to commune and relate with God but also they are put under and creation is put under a curse where it's subjected to futility and death, where we see fruitlessness and uh, this hindrance to work, right? So we see these curses play out in Genesis chapter three. So this is the framework of all of redemption, right? God is setting about to fix that reality, The two results of sin as it relates to those two capacities are what God has been doing since day one of the fall, right? He's working this out. And how is he doing it? He's 
promising throughout the Old Testament, you see two ways that God promises that he's going to bring redemption. And it's hard to sometimes understand how do they play together, right? Sometimes we see that there's coming to be a savior who's going to offer forgiveness and take away the wrath and judgment of God so that people can live in relationship with him again. And we see promises of a coming king who will judge the enemies of God and establish the reign of God over all of creation. We see these from the very jump in the Old Testament. Look at Genesis 49. This is one of the earliest promises given of the coming king who would establish God's purposes over creation, restoring the glory to humanity that Adam abdicated in sin. The scepter or the royal rule will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him will be the obedience of all peoples. Right? So after establishing the kingdom of Israel several thousand years later, God makes a covenant to David that there would be a son from his line who would rule forever over God's household. Look at 2 Samuel 7. God comes to David and says, I will raise up your offspring after you. I will establish his kingdom. I will establish his throne of his kingdom forever. We see the same thing in Psalm 89. I will establish your offspring, David, and his throne like the days of heaven, meaning there will be no end to the throne of the one that comes from the line of David. The Psalms are full of promises of God's design to set a Davidic king over all the earth to rule in righteousness and justice forever. Let's just look at a couple of these. Psalm 2 God speaks, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth, you will possess them. You will break them with a rod of iron and dash them like pieces of a potter's vessel. Psalm 8 speaks of the glory, the created glory of humanity in this regard. You've given them dominion and you've put all things under their feet. Look at the top of page three. Psalm 110 This is one of the favorite Psalms of the New Testament writers in speaking of what has been accomplished in Christ Jesus. They say, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So throughout the Old Testament, God promised he would send an anointed king to judge his enemies and bring his reign of everlasting righteousness. Now, I don't want you to miss this. The reality of God's eternal kingship expressed by the rule of his anointed king all throughout the Old Testament is presented as one of the primary evidences of God's final act of salvation as outlined and understood in the Old Testament. So what we have to get into, into our our hearts and minds and our imaginations as we hear these words of Jesus In the framework of understanding what God had promised all through the old covenant scriptures was that one of the primary signs that God had fully and finally acted to bring salvation was that this king would rule over everything. That was one of the primary evidences of it. 
So to say that the king is reigning or will be reigning, you'll see the king reigning, means not just I'm going to have authority, but God is going to fully and finally act in his uh, way of salvation. It's one of the ways it was to be expressed and understood. Look at letter I. No passage in the scriptures speak of this as potently as Daniel 7. In this passage, God shows Daniel the reality of a kingdom that was given to a man, one like the son of man who would come to the ancient of days, God himself, on the clouds to be given an eternal kingdom. Look at Daniel 7 here. Now, here's an invitation. Go spend some time with Daniel 7. Read it slowly. It's not as weird as it seems. There's beasts and they, they look weird and they're like chimera in, 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 in their like makeup. It's not as hard to grasp as you might think. The essence of Daniel 7 is this. The power bases of this world in the eyes of God are beast-like. There's coming a day when God will receive to himself one like the Son of Man. He will come on the clouds of heaven and he will give him his eternal reign. And when that happens, he will destroy the power bases of this world that hate him and have turned against him. Look at Daniel 7. Here's the punchline. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days, that's God Almighty, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, all languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting. It will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. So it's this passage that gives the most clear backdrop for Jesus' statement to the high priest in Matthew 26. Jesus is declaring, now don't, don't miss this, Jesus is declaring that in the unfolding of his trial and death and soon-to-be resurrection, that God is fulfilling Daniel 7. He's saying right now in front of your eyes, high priest, while I look like I'm shamed and mocked and cast out by the people of Israel, right now, God is fulfilling Daniel 7. The son of man is coming on the clouds of heaven. He is being presented to the almighty to receive an everlasting dominion, an everlasting kingdom, one that will not fade away. Look at Roman numeral four. So Jesus' statement is intended to demonstrate that he understands the events surrounding his death and resurrection, two realities will come to pass. First, he demonstrates that he will be exalted to the right hand of God. This truth represents the reality of Jesus' exaltation as Lord and King over all creation. Second, we see that Jesus understands his death and resurrection will qualify him to judge the wicked and establish God's eternal kingdom coming on the clouds of heaven. This speaks of what Jesus will accomplish at his second coming when he brings God's redemptive purposes to their full consummation. Now, two realities are being spoken of in this moment. 
They are so intricately connected that Jesus can identify them as one thing in God's economy, even though they're separated by nearly 2,000 years or who knows how long they will be separated. They are one reality. Now, this happens often in the Bible. This is just an interpretive hermeneutic for you. Often in the Bible, concepts about what God's going to do in the future will get talked about as one reality, though there might be a lot of space between them. Here's a helpful way to think about it. Uh, A couple days ago, Abby and I were on a walk. We're walking through Loose Park, and I'm like fascinated by hawks, right? Like they're, they're my obsession. And I see one circling up overhead, quite a, quite a ways away. And I'm like looking at it, hopefully I'm not running into anyone. And I see it land in this huge pine tree down the way. And I'm trying to tell Abby, I'm like, hey Abby, look at that pine tree over there. There's a hawk sitting right on the top. I mean, literally the top branch, it's sitting up there. And we're walking and, and she finally sees it and then As we get closer, we were maybe 100, 200 feet away. As we get closer, I actually realize what had happened where there were two trees probably separated by 30 feet. And it was in the second tree. But I thought it was in the first. I thought it was one tree, right? So I'm looking from a ways back. Hey, in the future down there, there's a hawk in this first tree here, right? Like there's a hawk in the tree. I only think it's one tree because I can't see the distance between it. Oftentimes, biblical prophecy operates like that, right? So Jesus goes, hey, I want you to look at something, high priest. When I die and I raise again, I'm gonna be seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And he's actually talking about two realities that are going to be separated by some time. As we get up closer to it, you're gonna see, oh, there's there's a gap between these. But from a distance, they look like one reality. The same thing can happen like when you're driving up on the mountains, right? Like when you drive up and you see the first ridge uh, when you're coming along the Rockies, you see mountaintops that look like they're right on top of each other. But they could be 50, 70, you know, however long miles in between them. You just see this huge reality that looks like it's one, but when you get up to it, there's distance between them. So this is what Jesus is doing here. Okay, look at the top of page four. So the early church understands really quickly that the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, God acted to exalt him to the right hand of God, to the right hand of power and set him as the universal king over all creation. Jesus understands this. We see in the giving of the great commission, That he now, presently, when he shows up to his disciples, he presently possesses all authority in heaven and earth. Look at this, Matthew 28. The 11 disciples go to Galilee. They go to the mountain that Jesus told them to go to. When they saw him, they worshiped. Some still doubted. What does Jesus say to them? His first words to them on the mountain where he's told them to go to. Hey, it's happened. The son of man is seated at the right hand of power. All authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. He's saying, I'm the king. I am the king. I am ruling and reigning over all of created order. 
It's been granted to me. I've earned it. God has exalted me that I would be the king over everything. Paul understands that this has happened. Jesus has been raised to the right hand of God and seated above every authority, every power, every dominion. Look at Ephesians chapter one. He says the power of God was demonstrated as he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And what did he do? He seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above every rule, every authority, every power, every dominion, every name that's named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. He put every single thing under his feet. That's what happened when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God. Every authority, every dominion, every power, every principality, everything in this world was put under his feet. Philippians chapter two, Paul says it this way, because Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Okay, look at the Roman numeral five at the end of this page. So what does this mean for us, right? Like, why does this matter? Why do we talk about this? Why does it matter that you fix your gaze on this, familiarize yourself with the truth of this? What does it matter for us to look at the fact that Jesus is the son of man seated at the right hand of God. This really matters for us. As his people, as his church, it matters for how we see the world, how we see what's happening in the world. Here's a few implications. Number one, Jesus is presently reigning as king over all creation. The author of Hebrews invites us to see that we can right now by faith, look at the resurrected Messiah and be certain that he's ruling and reigning over all creation. Go back up a few lines to Hebrews chapter two here. The author of Hebrews makes a a statement about what we can see in the resurrection of Jesus. He says, now putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see actualized everything subjected to him, right? Like you're going, it doesn't really look like it, right? That's, that's, that's what you're supposed to feel in this moment. Yes, this is true, but like, why is there still evil in the world? Why is there still death? Why is there still decay and destruction and misunderstanding? Why are things so hard? He says, we don't yet see the full manifestation of this reality. Verse nine, but we do see Jesus. We see him by faith, the one that was made a little lower than the angels, Jesus Christ, he's been crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So the author of Hebrews says, one of the realities of Jesus being exalted to the right hand of God is it is meant to fill us with confidence and faith even as we walk through difficulty in this world. This truth invites us to be confident that no matter what we're experiencing in this world, Jesus is presently winning. 
Jesus is presently getting what he wants. He's perfectly and fully accomplishing the exact plan of God that is leading all of human history to its point of consummation. Revelation 6, another chapter you should go familiarize yourself with. It invites us to see that the fulfillment of God's redemptive purpose include trouble and tribulation. So Revelation's a fascinating book. You might go like, man, again, Daniel 7, Revelation, what are we talking about here? Revelation 5, there's a portrait of the eternal God on the throne. And he's got in his hand a scroll. And the scroll is, how is he going to accomplish his purpose? That's what the scroll represents. It's his blueprint for making all things new. And nobody can get it, right? He's, he's sitting on his throne and no person because it was meant to be enacted by a human. Go all the way back to Genesis 1. Adam was meant to fulfill God's purposes in the world as a human. There's no human that could do it. They have this like scene where John begins to weep because he's like, nobody's going to accomplish God's purposes. And then he sees the lamb that was slain, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he gets to walk up and take the scroll out of the hand of God. And he begins to enact it by breaking the seals. And when he does, the world experiences remarkable difficulty and hardship. The reason I'm belaboring this is that Jesus enacting his purposes fully in this world does not always look like what we would imagine success would look like. Right? We, think, we think Jesus is king means things keep getting better and things keep getting more Christian and more like peaceful and he's going to establish his kingdom in these ways over the world and isn't it just going to get better and better and easier and easier and then we still come up against the hardships of life, right? And Jesus in Matthew talks about the time between his comings and he goes, hey, it's gonna be marked by wars and rumors of wars and famines and pestilences and wild beasts and tribulation and trouble. This is what it's gonna look like. I'm winning. I'm winning. And you're going, Jesus, how in the world are you winning? He would say, I invite you to Look at what's real. The son of man is seated at the right hand of God. So what do we do with that? Paul situates this, number four here, the present reign of Jesus as our source of meditation and strength as we walk through this life, actively setting our minds on the things above by faith. Look at this. We talked about it last week. I wanna harp on it again. Colossians chapter three, Paul goes, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ right now is seated at the right hand of God. He's in charge. He's calling the shots. Nothing is happening outside of his tender care. He's enacting his purposes. 
He's in control. And even when we can't understand why in the world it would happen that way, he goes, set your mind on heavenly things, not on earthly things. Don't get caught up with the way that it looks here. Get your eyes up to where your life is hidden with God in Christ. Set your mind on the king. Seated above everything right now. Right now. Jesus is presently reigning over all creation. Look at this second one. Jesus is presently reigning through his church. The New Testament authors understand that the primary way that Jesus expresses his reign on the earth between his comings is through the ministry of his church. I don't think it's unimportant that Jesus, when he shows up to the disciples and he says, hey, it's happened. I have all authority. I'm the king. What does he tell them? What does he give them? He tells them, go and make disciples. That's the charge that he gives his disciples. The Great Commission is situated up under Jesus receiving all authority in heaven and earth. Here it is again. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Paul relates the present reign of Christ to his headship over the body, who is his fullness in the earth. Look at Ephesians 1. This is just after what we talked about where he said he raised him up, seated him over every authority, dominion, power, principality. What did he do there? He put everything under his feet and he gave him to be the head over the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So it's important for us to understand that the primary way that Jesus expresses the reign of his kingdom through this age in the church is through spiritual ministry. This speaks of the faithful witness of the gospel among those who are presently not a part of the family and faithful discipleship of those who are part of the church into greater maturity or obedience to his word. Okay, if, if everything was always about temple building, right? The beginning was this temple building reality. The primary way this happens in this age is through the building up of the church into the fullness and maturity of Christ. Now you might be going like, why in the world am I talking about this? The reason I'm belaboring this point, or I want to belabor this point, is it is so easy for us to get caught up in a mindset that gets distracted with trying to see the kingdom of God enacted in all of the places around us. And it's really clear from the New Testament that the primary place where the church walks out the kingdom ministry of Christ is in faithful witness to the gospel and in discipleship. That's the primary place that this happens. The primary place where we walk out obedience to the kingship of Jesus, he is the Lord over everything, is through faithful witness and discipleship, the Great Commission. 
the church in this world is going to be a lot more like an embassy than it is going to be like a nation that takes over the world. It's going to be like an embassy. An embassy is the place where it's a, a sojourning pilgrim-like reality, right? It's, the, it's an outpost of a kingdom that's far away. It's not expanding and expanding and making everything different. It's seeing that kingdom expressed in that place and shaping the lives of those who are part of that kingdom as they come and touch one another. And then we go out to share witness of, hey, come, we know where the true kingdom is. We know where the true kingdom is. We actually have the message of life and peace in Christ Jesus. So the kingdom of God is going to look way more like an embassy than it is going to look like an empire that takes over the whole world until he comes back, which we're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. There will be a day when it comes over the whole world. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. Okay, I'm going to stop us there. I'm, I'm right at time. Amen. Amen. Jesus is winning. Jesus is reigning. Let's stand. Gosh, I just feel like even hearing that, those stories about what's going on in Vietnam, it's like, Jesus is working. He's the king and he's given his people a way by which to live into his kingdom in this world. It's like, God, would you fill our faith up? Would you strengthen us to see you seated at the right hand of God as ruler and authority over everything? God, would you fill us with confidence that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to you? And would you empower us as your emissaries into this world to go to make disciples, to baptize, to disciple, to teach in obedience? God, would you activate faith in us? God, in the places where we are struggling to believe, God, where we are tempted to draw back just like the, the Hebrews were, just like the, the letter to the Hebrews, they are so tempted to look around them and to be discouraged and despairing and draw back. And you say, yes, we don't presently see the universal reality that Jesus is in charge, but we do see Jesus. Meaning that we have eyes by faith to see him. So God, would you come and fill us this morning? Would you give us eyes to see him? Would you strengthen us to set our minds on things above, not on the things of this world? Would you, would you embolden us and minister to us even right now? God, as we respond to you in faith, I ask that you would move among us. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he offered it to his disciples and he said, this is my body broken for you. Take it and eat of it. 
And in the same manner, he took a cup of wine and after blessing it and giving thanks, he passed it to his disciples and he said, drink up, drink of this. This is my blood, the blood of the covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take it and drink it. And in the same manner, we come this morning and respond by faith, by receiving the meal that Jesus instituted. The meal that even as we're looking at today, through his death, he became qualified to be the king. Right? Therefore, Paul says in Philippians 2, because of his obedient death, God has exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. So as a people who have submitted our lives to King Jesus, I wanna invite us to come and receive of this sacrament this morning, the broken body and shed blood of Christ Jesus. If you put your hope and faith in him, I wanna invite you to come and receive this. The way we take communion at Redeemer is you tear a piece of the bread off and dip it into the cup. We have wine in the stoneware, juice in the glassware. Uh, we'll have servers up front in the middle, in the balcony, and uh, gluten-free to my right, to your left. If you're in the room this morning and you don't put your faith in King Jesus, we wanna ask that you not feel pressure to come and take this meal. This meal is a pointer to something. It, it points to a reality beyond itself. This meal doesn't make you right with God. It doesn't afford you merit in his presence. It points to the place where that happens in the death of Jesus Christ. So for those who are coming, come and take with joy. And like we do every week, we've got ministers who would love to pray with you, pray for you. If there's anything in your heart that you need uh, God to come and move in your life. If you're sick in your body and you wanna ask, uh, have someone stand with you and ask that God would, through his body, express the realities of his kingdom. We would love to stand with you and ask that God would pour out healing upon you. If you need strength, in your journey to see the one who is seated at the right hand of God. We'd love to ask for the spirit to move in, in, in that way in your life as well. But we'll respond through song, through prayer, and through coming to the table. You can come when you're ready.